Well, good morning, friends, and uh, greetings from uh, exotic London. I'm not sure if London's ever been called that, but um, I'll take it. Um, Matt has been a, 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 a model to me in many aspects of, of, of ministry, and uh, I'm delighted to call uh, your pastor my friend, and so it is an absolute pleasure to be uh, here with you this morning as we look at this well-known psalm uh, together, and so would you please uh, turn up in your Bible, Psalm 51, Psalm 51, if you're using a church Bible, I have no idea what page that is on, um, but perhaps you could just turn to your neighbor and, and, and ask them, uh, Psalm 51, and I'm starting to read uh, verse 1, to the choir master, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt Offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, before we dive back into uh, God's Word, let's just briefly pray for his help, uh, recognizing that it is he alone who gives us eyes to see. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you so much for your Word. Uh, We thank you that through hearing it, we can grow in confidence that we are right with you through Christ and that we can be made increasingly righteous as your Spirit works in us. And so we We pray that you might have mercy upon us this morning, that you would illuminate this well-known text, help us to meditate deeply on these truths, 
uh, now and in the week ahead. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Ryan was born in Wales. Polo was born in Bangladesh. Uh, Richard in England and David in the Middle East. From childhood, Ryan was known for his, his absolute adoration of his family. Uh, Polo was a committed Muslim girl. Uh, Richard attended a church school and David was a faithful Jew. At school, Ryan was gifted at every sport. Polo was told she had a brilliant mind. Richard was a fantastic communicator. David's leadership skills were quickly identified. Ryan uh, grew up married and, and had two lovely children and was one of the world's best soccer players. In a career that has lasted two decades, Ryan played over 900 matches for one of the world's most successful soccer teams. He was never sent off and was once British Sports Personality of the Year. Pola worked hard at school after moving to the United Kingdom. In her early 20s, Pola formed her own charity. By the time she was 30, Pola had started managing regional, women's regional health projects. And in her 40s, Pola became the youngest woman to be elected to the House of Lords, similar to the Senate. And in her 50s, Pola was nominated as Female Politician of the Year. Richard uses communication skills for good. He wanted to help society, and so he studied politics. But his love for people saw him move into journalism. Uh, Richard was also known for his devotion to young people, and he became a star presenter on the most loved BBC children's program ever. David became one of the most successful military and political leaders ever. He became one of the wealthiest men in history and was admired and revered by many leaders. Consequently, Ryan was nominated as ambassador for UNICEF. Pola received international recognition for promoting human rights. Richard was elected celebrity supporter of the Red Cross. And David was called the man after God's own heart. But five years ago, it was publicly revealed that Ryan had an affair. Not only with a model, but also a seven-year affair with his sister-in-law. And in 2010, Polo was indefinitely suspended from politics for falsely claiming thousands and thousands of dollars in public expenses. And in 1998, Richard was sacked from the popular children's television program for cocaine abuse. And in about 1000 BC, David was confronted by a man who proclaimed that he had not only got a married woman pregnant, but that he had used political means to ensure that her husband was killed in warfare. Well, sadly, Ryan, Polar, Richard, and David are not made-up characters. They're all real people. And as their stories suggest, they, they are or they were all very talented people. They are or were all very successful people, good people, 
role models of their day. And three of them still are alive and they live in my country in England. But it is the fourth transgressor, David. This man from the Middle East, a similarly talented role model that I want us to focus on uh, this morning. And I do that not only because David is the writer of our, of our passage this morning, as you can see there, but because David is evidently the only one of the four who genuinely knew how to deal with his transgression. For it is apparent that only David genuinely saw his, his transgression for what it was, Only David genuinely repented. Consequently, only David was genuinely forgiven and genuinely changed. And the only one who thus far, I would argue, has found any genuine peace at all. And the reason that David's way of dealing with transgression is worth studying together this morning, although it might seem obvious to the more thoughtful and and honest amongst us is because every single person in this room and indeed outside of the room is a transgressor. Whether we are publicly exposed or not, when we are at our most sensible, perhaps weeks after the transgression, perhaps when we climb into bed and turn out the light and, and replay the past, we know that we are often wrong. And I imagine that if the the infamous British tabloid journalists went through our lives, through everything we we, we did in the dark, there would be some things that we would hope would not be exposed and drawn out into the light and on the front pages of the newspapers. Consequently, if you're anything like me, I imagine too that there have been times when you have wrestled with guilt alone and regret of what you thought was concealed perhaps over a particular transgression, maybe ongoing transgression that is, that is yet to be exposed by, by your pastor or your, your friends or your family. And because of that, and with those brief biographies in mind, I do hope that, that none of us here will foolishly think that we have somehow become too good or too successful or, or too good a role model, too wise, to let this well-known passage just sweep over us this morning thinking that we do not need to know how to genuinely deal with sin anymore. And yet at the same time, I also hope that nobody here will think back on on moments of their life and think themselves too awful to think their transgressions cannot be genuinely dealt with this morning. Because you see, friends, there's the same forgiveness that that is possible for an adulterous murderer like King David is the very same available for Ryan and for Pola and for Richard and for you and for me. And so key question this morning, key question, how do we genuinely deal with sin, with transgressions, with mistakes, with all the mess and the mistakes that ensue? Well, to answer that question this morning, I've broken up our passage into three parts. You can see them on the the reverse of your, your handout if you want to follow along. And the first of these, which David illustrates to us this morning, is number one, point one, a genuine recognition of sin. A genuine recognition of sin. Uh, perhaps more simply put, where does, where does David think sin starts? 
Well, as we look down uh, the passage this morning, you'll see straight away that as a broken king begins to reflect on his sin and begins to trace that sin all the way back to its root, he begins to see that he was sinful from birth. Which might be a surprising root when we think of the context of, of David's sin here. After all, after reading 2 Samuel chapter 11, where this very well-known incident of David and Bathsheba is recorded, uh, we may think that, that David uh, fell into the, the sin of, of adultery and murder because actually he should have been at war. And strictly speaking, that is what a, a, a king should have been doing in around 1000 BC. And consequently, we today might conclude that to, to genuinely deal with sin, we too should just stay busy. Uh, perhaps others of us think that, that David shouldn't even been given opportunity to see Bathsheba bathing on the roof. If only David had higher walls on the palace roof. And perhaps in the same way then, you think that, that if people would just build enough accountability into their lives, enough pre- preventative action, that we could all genuinely deal with sin. Now I'm saying this, please don't hear me implying that that staying busy and, and building accountability into your life is not a good thing. These are things we should, I think, do. However, we must observe here that when David is on his knees, no doubt replaying his, his awful sin and its horrific consequences for all involved, that David is not blaming the travel agent who persuaded him of a wartime staycation. Nor is David looking to sack the palace architect for low-rise palace walls on the roof. No, David is honest enough to recognize that his sin starts with himself. And furthermore, he genuinely recognizes that not only is he responsible for sin, but that he's sinful from birth. Just look down with me at verse 3. And, and again, if you close your Bibles, please open it back up again so that you can see that I'm not making this up. This comes straight out of the text. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 5 makes it even clearer. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, David is not just confessing here the far-reaching consequences of his sin here, but rather the fact that he is actually sinful to the core. That the very heart of his problem is the problem of his human heart. Now, that's not to say that David is bad as, as he could possibly be. But it is to say that like the rest of us, David has a sinful heart that corrupts and contaminates every relationship from relationship with others to relationship with God. Indeed, when David is his very best, he not only sees that, that he has failed but that he is a failure by definition. He's a failure by definition. Look carefully at those words. Can you see that? This is more than just a worldly sorrow from David. This is more than just a worldly kind of shrugging of the, of the shoulders and saying, I, I, I guess just like everybody else, I make mistakes. It is more than, than just declaring the wrong. It is being wrong. I am sinful from birth. And we, like him, are sinful from birth to. Well, friends, on the surface, it's a pretty hard doctrine to swallow, isn't it? 
After all, the doctrine of original sin is, it is not the most fashionable doctrine of the day. Indeed, as I was preparing this, I, I imagine what might have happened if when I visited my wife and our newborn son in a hospital last year, if I ran down the, the London ward shouting verse 5 aloud. I'm sure in America, just as in Britain, it would have caused an outcry. And why? Because unhappily, the world tries to convince us that, that fundamentally we are okay. From the secular elementary school assembly to the PhD in sociology, we're taught from a very early age that we are fundamentally good, only occasionally just messing up due to external circumstances. If only their genetic makeup was different, the experts say. If only their, their friends had been better role models, we subconsciously think. If, if only my education was different. If only my parents had been Christians or, 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 or been stronger Christians and shown me the right way to go, we protest. But if we're truly honest with ourselves, if we genuinely recognize sin and trace it right back to the source, we come to understand that we are not born good. Now, sadly, I know that I will not have to teach my sweet 10-month-old son how to sin any more than I had to teach my sweet 3-year-old daughter any more than I had to teach my sweet five-year-old son, and any more than my parents had to teach me. As William Law, a famous preacher, bluntly wrote, self is the root, the tree, and the branches of all the evils of our fallen state. We are sinful from birth. But why? Why, you might be thinking, why is the recognition that we are innately sinful so important for us to meditate on? I mean, surely just holding that kind of attitude will just end up making us very negative or, or very cynical, maybe a bit depressed, maybe even worse than that, a bit British. <laughs> well, if you look down again at verse 4 and 6, see if you can work out why it is so important to have this awareness. Verse 4. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, David, you see, recognizes here a, another dimension, a deeper dimension of his sin here, which helps us to perceive sin's seriousness. In short, David recognizes that, that God is holy from eternity. God is holy from eternity. But can you see what, what God uh, desires from people in verse 6. You desire truth in the inner being. God desires perfection in heart and mind. And God doesn't demand that because he's some kind of a grumpy math teacher kind of character, longing for an incorrect calculation in the, in the equations of life so he can put a big X on the page. No, he does that because in contrast to us, God is good. He is good to the core that is what holiness means, distinctly, separately good. He is and always has been perfectly righteous. And David knows this full well. That's why he says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David doesn't mean this, that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba, who he slept with, or, or against her husband, who he calculatingly murdered. 
Rather, David says this because he recognizes that everyone else's ability to see his sin and hate it is nothing compared to God's ability. He is holy. And so, friends, can you see how a right self-perception is so intertwined with a right perception of God? For the more we see God's holy nature, the more we see our sinful nature. And therefore, the grave danger of thinking that we are fundamentally okay and that guilt and that, and that lack of self-esteem are just things to be avoided at all costs. The great theologian John Calvin illustrated it like this marvelously. Listen to this. He said this. An eye which is shown nothing but black objects judges something dirty white to be whiteness itself. Even in broad daylight, when we look down upon earthly objects and think we are blessed with the best sense of sight. Yet when we look up to the sun and gaze at it, that sight is blunted by such brilliance. And so we admit that our keenness in looking upon earthly things is is sheer dullness when compared to looking at the sun. So it happens in estimating ourselves. As long as we do not look beyond the earth, we flatter ourselves most sweetly. We consider ourselves virtuous. But suppose, suppose we raise our thoughts to God to ponder his nature. What earlier righteousness will soon grow filthy. Calvin concludes, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with the majesty of God. So I wonder, are you humble enough to realize where sin in your life really comes from? Do we see ourselves accurately like David does? Would it be obvious to to friends and family members that that we actually see ourselves like this? Is David's recognition of sin and and God's holiness something that that is part of our walk with God publicly and privately? It may be some time since we became Christians. Hopefully we're growing in holiness. But are there times, moments when we rightly recognize that sin still exists? Times when we so perceive the brilliance of God's brilliance that we are broken by our brokenness. And if not, to use Calvin's illustration, do you spend enough time looking at the sun? Or having become a Christian, do you now spend more time looking down with those earthly eyes? That sin doesn't really matter. It's not as bad compared to others. I'm sure God doesn't really care. Perhaps an instantaneous society has made you less introspective. Perhaps this is why public prayers of confession are so often neglected in many churches today. In truth, we really don't make enough time to just stop and be quiet and consider. Why not carve out a few moments of a busy week to do that? Spend time slowly confessing sin. It's important that we make time as Christians to do that. But perhaps you're here this morning and you've never really realized ever the depth of your transgression. That you're not a Christian and you genuinely still think that you are okay. Well, if that's you, four very quick things. Uh, Firstly, welcome. Uh, This is not my church, but I know Matt well enough to say that if you are not a Christian and you are here, welcome. We're glad you came. 
And secondly, can I encourage you to honestly reflect upon your life and carefully consider whether you really are okay. Perhaps compare your life to to David's, the rest of David's life, or Jesus' life. And thirdly, can I I warn you in in as loving a way as possible that one day, just as verse 4 suggests, God will judge. That one day, verse 6, he will come looking for truth in the inner being in all his brilliance. And like someone throwing back the curtains on a summer morning, in that moment we will recognize better than we can ever do now our innate sinfulness and God's frightening holiness. And so fourthly, can I encourage you, please keep listening. Keep listening. There is wonderful hope in a passage for those who genuinely recognize sin. Well, if a genuine recognition of sin was the starting point for for David and for us, what's the next component on David's road to forgiveness and right standing before God's second state, which David models for us uh, here? Point two, if you're following those notes, uh, point to a genuine repentance from sin. And again, as you, as you look at that point there, can you see that there is, is something here that we should do and also something that, that, that God will do? Uh, for the first thing with regard to the genuineness of, of David's repentance is his distress at sin. Did you feel the, the, the tone of the, of the psalm when I read it earlier? This is kind of minor key stuff. It's not major key. This is minor key. You notice the way that David expresses his feelings. Look at the poetry in verses 8 and and, and 9. They capture it well. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. David is sad. In fact, he's more than sad. He is distressed. I wonder what you think about that. I wonder what you might think or or you might say if you saw distraught David swanning around Vanderbilt campus in his sackcloth and speaking of his bones being broken. I guess some of us here probably think this kind of of reaction is over the top. Some of us might might send him to maybe a a Christian therapist for for low self-esteem. Either way, guilt and depression over sin are pretty unfashionable. But you know, the Bible is full of people, full of people just like David, who correctly model a right distress at sin. Indeed, I believe it is appropriate that Christians are, are, are laid low for a season when we sin. Indeed, if you claim to be a Christian here this morning, I, I hope after times when you know that you have been so far from imitating your Lord Jesus Christ that you have been sat for more than just a few seconds. Indeed, if that's you, in some senses, you should be encouraged. For weeping over sin is a, is a good indicator that of true Christianity. Ephesians 4 says that when Christians sin, they grieve the Holy Spirit inside them. On the other hand, let me say that if you have recurring sin in your life, and you claim to be a Christian, and you are not bothered about it in any way at all, then I think there might be something fundamentally wrong with your Christianity. Because genuine repentance shows distress at sin. However, as we look through the psalm, it's clear, isn't it, that David doesn't stay distressed. He doesn't stay distressed. Uh, He does not stay in this hope, 
hopeless, guilty disposition, and nor are Christians to either. For the main thing that David models to us, and in this, in many ways, is the very heart of, of repentance, the very heart of the psalm, is that David cries out to mercy based on God's character. You just nod it off for a second. Stay with me again. Let me say that again. David cries out for mercy based on God's character. You can see that in verse 1, and you can see that in verse 2, and you can see that throughout verses 7 to 12. Just look at all those imperatives that, that David asks God of. Purge me, wash me, renew me, restore me. David sees his sin rightly, and David is rightly distressed at his sin, and David quite rightly asks God for forgiveness. But look at what that plea is based on. Is the plea based on David's previous track record? Is God's mercy based on on David's amazing prayer life as evidenced in the Psalms? Or David's courageous defeat of, of, of Goliath? Or David's beautiful harp sessions in the, in, in the church worship band? Or David's short-term mission trips around Israel? No. David already knows that he is sinful to the core, and so he says absolutely nothing about himself. Instead, David cries out for mercy, verse 1, according to God's steadfast love, his abundant mercy. Friends, that is what true repentance looks like. And that is where true forgiveness is found. It is not a a, a sorry God, but remember that time when I... It is not a sorry God. I I know I can do better. It is not a a sorry God. Now I'm going to do this. It is a sad and bowed head in the courtroom. And it is a pleading guilty to the crime. And it is a plea which rests entirely on the judge's disposition. And so again, just like the first point, can you see that this is, not, this is something that we cannot do alone? We cannot genuinely recognize sin without God, and we cannot genuinely know repentance without God either. And so what will God do? What will the judge do? When we recognize sin for what it is, when we are distressed by sin, longing to, to, to turn from it, And when we cry out for for mercy based on on God's character, the Bible tells us that God will restore those who trust in his sacrifice. God will restore those who trust in his sacrifice. Look down with me again uh, to the last few verses of this passage, verses uh, 16 to to, to 19. On the surface, they're a bit confusing, aren't they? From one level, David knows that these, these Old Testament sacrifices, these, these, these burnt offerings are, are not sufficient for the depth of his sin. No bull, no, no animal could fully atone for, for David's uh, murder and adultery. And that's why he says in verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or, or I would give it. Indeed, David has already modeled to us what, what, what God really wants. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That, that, that genuine, sorrowful repentance that we've just spoken about. But, but notice, too, that in verse 19, David doesn't want to get rid of sacrifices either. He wants, verse 18, Jerusalem, his kingdom, to, to continue in right sacrifices. But what are those right sacrifices? Well, for David, he has to just trust uh, God's sacrifices thus far. 
But for us, this is where it is wonderfully much easier. This is when we have the wonderful privilege of of living after David and after Jesus. For like David, we are to be distressed at sin, but in a far clearer way, we can know final and full restoration if we trust in the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in Jerusalem, as we've been singing about this morning. David models distress at sin well. But for restoration with God, David has to just, David just has to trust in the, in the only sacrifices he had, which were just shadows. But we can model a right distress out of sin and then wonderfully know that, that God will restore us when we trust in not the shadow, but the reality. The ultimate display of God's character, his loving and, and merciful character, Jesus Christ on a cross dying for our sin. That's why when Jesus arrives after David, it is such good news. Indeed, that's why the very first words of of Jesus recorded in in Mark's gospel are repent and and believe the good news. Those two verbs are are, are wonderfully, uh, such a good paraphrase of David's Psalm 51, aren't they? Repent and believe. Repent. Own up. Recognize that you are sinful, even sinful from birth that you are so unlike your holy maker and be distressed by your sin and cry out for mercy and believe the good news that God will restore you. God will restore you if you trust in his sacrifice. Friends, that's the heart of Christianity. If you don't know what Christianity is about, that is it. That is the heart of the Christian life. It is both the starting line in the Christian life and it is the regular pit stop in the Christian life. Repenting and believing is how we begin and how we continue confidently on as Christians. And so wonderfully, Psalm 51 is, is not just a one-time event for when we become Christians, but a psalm that we, we can and we need to keep coming back to until heaven, until we sin no more. Well, time is short. But one uh, final uh, aspect and, and application that I want us to just observe here quickly for it is apparent that David also models for us one final position. Point three, uh, finally and more briefly, Christians are to display three, a genuine renewal after sin. Point three, a genuine renewal after sin. In, in short, what do those people who have been really forgiven look like? Well, if you glance down to verse 12, after asking God to restore to him the joy of salvation, uh, David in verse 13 starts then. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It's really interesting, isn't it? Until this, until this point, there have only been really two characters on the stage, David and, and God. You kind of picture us at the play of, of Psalm 51 and, and we picture in our minds David rightly sobbing in his bedroom that the door closed. And in a sense, that's Right? It is David's sin, and it is no one else's fault, and it is his sinful nature, and the holy God of the universe is the one that he has most offended, and it is only God who is able to restore through Christ. But in the play that is Psalm 51, there is just a cast of two. But in verse 13, others enter stage right. Others get involved, or more to the point, David gets involved with others. After looking within and after looking up, David now looks out. After looking within and looking up, David now looks out. 
And I believe that this is so often the position that many of us do not get to. We see sin. We rightly confess sin. But we don't use sin. What I mean by that is that we don't often use transgression to help other people. Indeed, I think that many of us, and this was certainly me in the past, having come to Christ, having, having wrestled with certain sin as Christians, then stay quiet about our experiences. Now, we may do this for a whole host of, of right reasons. Perhaps we don't want to be uh, too introspective or too preachy or be talking about ourselves all the time. But if we're really honest, I, I guess many of us would, would actually rather people didn't know about our past transgression. And certainly there are times when it is appropriate to share such sins. But I do wonder how many of us here regularly look for appropriate opportunities to teach transgressors God's ways, urging people to repentance. I'm sure many of us here genuinely recognize sin when we reflect by ourselves. And I hope that many of us continue to genuinely experience forgiveness as we look to the finished work of Jesus on the cross but, but often we do not teach it. Sin is fully dealt with, yes, fully dealt with. But that wonderful experience of God's mercy in spite of our wickedness stays just, just in our bedroom. And therefore an opportunity to help other people is just lost. But, but if like David we grasp just how sinful we are and grasp how, how just how gracious God is to restore us, then, then surely we will long to teach others about our past sin and that wonderful truth that we are now, verse 7, washed whiter than snow. Friends, when we picture that in our minds, when we meditate on that image of snow-like purity, crisp, white, whiter than white, holiness through Christ, surely we will love others enough to teach them to turn away from sin and to trust Christ alone. Uh, one preacher put it simply like this. Personal sin reflected upon breeds compassion. Personal sin reflected upon breeds compassion. But you know, being forgiven shouldn't only cause us to emanate love for, for others by teaching them, but it should also cause us to emanate something else. But look at the final thing that David does in verse 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Friends, if we've understood God's word, then we will realize that well, God will deserve all our praise. God will deserve all our praise. For it is so appropriate, is it not? So appropriate that after experiencing genuine recognition of sin in light of God's amazing holiness, and after experiencing whiter than white repentance, forgiveness in light of God's mercy, that we would just long to praise him. Indeed, one of my favorite bits in, in all of literature is when in the famous book Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the man, the central character by the name of Christian, loses his great burden of sin at the cross. And John Bunyan, the, uh, the author who, who lives just around the corner from my parents, who used to live rather around the corner from my parents, writes this. As Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do so, till it came to the mouth of the grave, where it fell in. 
and he saw it no more. Then he stood a little while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. So here we are, here we are at the very apex of the book, what does Christian do next? The story continues, then Christian gave three leaps of joy and sang. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, could not ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this, must here be the beginning of all my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back, must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Bless cross, bless grave, blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. I recognize that some of us here, some of us just like me, who are not like Christian in the sense that we could, we're not like musical. We could not have thought up a little tune like that on the spot. Indeed, some of us uh, living in Nashville, the music city, can't even sing in tune. Uh, Nevertheless, I I do believe that if we're Christians, if we have grasped Psalm uh, 51 rightly, if we have been those who have had the burden of, of sin lifted at the cross, then all of us, musical or not, will see how fitting it is to just praise God to gather regularly with God's people every Sunday and to praise him, to share with others and sing of of sins now forgiven, to pray and to praise with great thankfulness in your small groups in midweek that that God has helped you to recognize that particular sin and that God has forgiven you through Christ. And friends, if you find that hard, If you find that hard, perhaps verse 15 is a prayer that you can begin with this day. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We're going to do that in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Because of you, we can genuinely deal with sin. We thank you that through your word, by your Holy Spirit, you allow us to recognize our sin. And we thank you that as Christians, we need not fear your return when you will come looking for truth in the inner place. We thank you that through Jesus' sacrifice, we can repent and know whiter than snow forgiveness. Father, we praise you for him, for his righteous sacrifice that does, does indeed cleanse us, that washes us whiter than snow and restores us to yourself. And so in light of such wonderful knowledge of forgiveness and freedom from all guilt, Father, we pray that you would help us to see how fitting and right it is to teach others and to praise your name publicly. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.